Well, as I get organized here, the phone for that. I invite you to turn your Bibles, if you have them there, to uh, John chapter 16, in verse 25. Um, my, uh, my guest assistant here will bring me my remote, I forgot. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. There we are. And as you're turning there, uh, we're going to pick up pretty much where we've left off in the last previous weeks. If you've been with us, you know we've been walking through a few chapters in the Gospel of John where where Jesus has been describing to his disciples and essentially to all followers, including us, the, some of the advantages that are gained from having a relationship with him. And these advantages, if you will, really serve as, as a foundation, as a sure foundation upon which we can confidently and, and firmly build our lives, build our homes, and even build our very church as we go forward into the future. It's just a means of very quick summary. If you've, if you've missed any of these, uh, you can listen to them online. If you want to be refreshed on some of the lessons, you can listen to them on the website, westmeadows.org. Uh, but we talked the first week about how we need to be abiding in Christ, how, how we as branches need to abide or, or get connected to the vine who is Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we tap into this source of vitality and this source of fruitfulness that can be used and seen through our life and through all of our ministries that we're involved in. The next week we talked about love, how Jesus Christ, through his teachings, through his example, through his sacrifice, was the greatest example of love that has ever been known. And that we as his followers should be known and should be seen and thought of as those who love others. In particular, those who love one another within this community. And then we got to a passage where Jesus announces for the final time that he's going to be leaving that he, he will be dying and leaving the disciples. And as difficult as that is for the disciples, he says, but, but guys, it's actually for your advantage. Because then he tells them again about the Holy Spirit who will then come and reside in them. And through various teachings in John chapter 14 through 16, we see that the Holy Spirit comes to dwell with us for the purpose of, of offering us counsel and conviction and comfort as we go through the different events in our lives. And if we are abiding in Christ, and if we are focused upon showing love, and the Holy Spirit dwells within us, then we also talked on another week about how the Spirit in us can produce fruit through us. These these Spirit-enabled virtues that show up in the ways that we live and respond and relate to the world around us. And then last week, Pastor Luke shared with us about the good news of Jesus Christ, about how this paradox of, of through death we receive life. How through our sorrow we'll turn to joy. But that's not found in the things of this world. Because the things of this world, when we try and find fulfillment and joy in those, it's like trying to grab the wind or trying to hold sand in your fingers. It, it just slips through. It's fleeting. It will not last. But the good news is that Jesus' work is complete and that his joy is available to those who abide in him and it is enduring. We can have confidence and we will find joy, eternal joy, in Jesus Christ. And that, folks, is the good news of Jesus Christ. So as we're abiding in Christ and living out of love and being indwelt by the Holy Spirit which produces fruit and claiming that joy of the good news that is ours, we can see these are all individual bricks that are being placed to form a sure foundation upon which we can build our lives, our homes, and our church. And so the passage we turn to today in John 16, Jesus actually concludes his teaching ministry in this passage today. 
Following this passage today, we get into chapter 17, which is a section called the High Priestly Prayers, where Jesus turns his focus to prayer, and after that, he is arrested, and we know the rest of the story from there. So the teachings we come across today are actually some of the final lessons that he leaves with his followers. And so he adds to them a final promise. He adds to them a final promise that after his death and resurrection, and and this is amazing news. I I think sometimes we are so accustomed to this, we are so used to it that we we can take it for granted, but this was was revolutionary to the disciples when they first heard it, and I think it falls fresh upon us today. I, I honestly pray it does. That because of the work following the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we as his followers have direct access to God the Father through prayer. It's common to us, but but I want to say it again, because if you think about the concept, it is mind-blowing that we have direct access to God, to the creator of all that is. Direct access to God through prayer. What an amazing promise that's given to us. And we're going to talk briefly about this today, because next week we're actually going to talk intentionally about prayer for, for the whole message And so this will serve as kind of an introductory into that aspect, which we'll pick up a little bit next week. But there's something else I want to focus upon today, too, that we'll see in this passage. That all of these promises, all of these these advantages, if you will, that we can have from being in relationship with Jesus Christ, centers around one thing. It centers around the disciples' belief in who Jesus was. And it leads Jesus to ask them a question. Midway through the passage. It leads him to ask the question, do you now believe? Now I'm not simply talking about a question here where where do you believe that a man named Jesus existed 2,000 years ago? That a historical figure named Jesus existed? Because even atheists and agnostics and people of almost every religion around the world believe that. The fact that a historical man named Jesus walked this earth is not a debated fact. And that's not the question I'm asking you. You know, I'm not even asking, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? That question in itself may be a huge step for a lot of people to take. But but I'm not even asking that question because Scripture tells us that even Satan and his followers believe that. Even the enemies of God believe he's the Son of God. You see, what I'm actually talking about here when I say, and I share this question with you, do you now believe, is do you believe in Jesus Christ to the point that you are willing to place your trust in him? Do you believe in him enough that you're willing to place your faith in him? You see, belief, which could better be referred to as faith, but there's a distinction there. You see, belief, as we could define it, is, is a belief in something to be true. It is true that a man named Jesus walked this earth 2,000 years ago. So we can believe in the truth of that. But faith, however, takes it a step further. Faith takes it to the point of saying, I believe that man walked 2,000 years ago, but I believe in who the Bible says he was to the point I am having faith to put my trust in him. To give you a quick example of that, I'll just use, for example, the very pew that you're sitting in right now. When you walked into the sanctuary here this morning, at some point you kind of eyeballed that spot you're all sitting in right now. And as you walked towards it, you thought, or you may have assumed, that pew is assembled correctly. That pew is attached to the ground. That pew is going to be comfortable. That pew will hold my weight. But that's not faith. 
That's belief. That's belief in the assembly. That's belief in the craftsmanship. When you actually sat down and placed all of your weight and allowed that pew to support your weight, at that point you had faith in it. That is when you had faith in it. So with that analogy in mind, let's begin to walk through this passage today, keeping in mind this key role that our faith in Jesus Christ plays. That I believe, no, I have faith that as we walk through this today, you'll come to see that faith is the key to unlocking the promises of God. And Jesus begins teaching here in this final address to his disciples by saying that up to this point, he says, up to this point I've been speaking figuratively. But a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but I will speak to you plainly about the Father. Now when we read the accounts of Jesus, which are recorded in the Gospels and in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it doesn't take long, and you might start feeling like these, these teachings, these conversations are, are making you have flashbacks to English class. Because you keep seeing these metaphors and these similes and personifications and analogies on, on so many pages. And it's true, throughout the Bible we see this. Throughout the entire Bible, from cover to cover, you will see a variety of genres. You will see a variety of literary devices that are being used. And these are very important to be aware of because... They inform, first of all, how we should be approaching that text, but also they inform the rules by which we interpret the text as well. And the accounts of Jesus are no exception to this. If, as you read through the Gospels, you'll see that he uses a lot of comparative language. He uses things that we've heard of before called, called parables. And these are not an attempt to be elusive. This is not an attempt to be confusing or to kind of hide some secretive meaning within the text. Contrary to what you may find when you read them, it's actually there to help us. These parables and these comparative language actually exist for the purpose of helping us to understand. Because when Jesus or another biblical author is talking about a spiritual principle, sometimes we lack the framework to really understand what they're trying to get at. And so these are an attempt at that. It would be similar when if a lawyer hands you a legal document and you read through it, or, or if your doctor were to give you a very technical diagnosis. You may not understand a lot of the words that they're using. So you'd say, come on, doc, give it to me in English. Which is another way of saying, explain it to me in terms I can relate to. Explain it to me in terms I can understand. Well, these figurative languages and parables are our attempt to do just that. They explain terms, they explain things in terms that we can understand. One definition of a parable that I encountered was this. A parable is a way of describing a heavenly principle alongside an earthly reality. A heavenly principle that is truth and we need to understand but don't quite have the framework to grasp is presented alongside an earthly reality that we do understand. Therefore, we have a framework in which to contemplate and come to understand this heavenly principle. And in this passage, the disciples don't have the framework to fully understand what the term Messiah means. Nor do they fully understand what is about to fully happen in their lives and the hours that are ahead of them. So much of this teaching that Jesus has been sharing with them could be referred to as as veiled language. Veiled language. When you hear the word veil, you might think back to, I don't think it's as popular today, but previously at your weddings, brides would would wear a veil, which would would cover their face partially. Um, This might look familiar. My beautiful bride, I want to share that with you today, (laughs) a few decades ago. But Nadine had a very large veil. As part of her, as part of her, she knew I was going to do that, by the way. <laughs> as part of her, uh, her wedding gown. 
And so if you recall, if you've been to a wedding where there's a veil, as, as the bride walks down the aisle, the veil is covering the face. And, and you can see through it. Like, you know, you know you're marrying the right person. But, but some of the details are a little blurred. You can't quite make out all the details. But then after you've exchanged vows, and that veil is lifted, there's a revealing, but also it kind of signifies that start of a new era. A new era as a married couple. Well, Jesus says in this passage, the day is coming. The day is coming when Jesus will lift that veil. And his followers will begin to see clearly all that he had taught and presented before them. He says the day is coming following his death, following his resurrection, when they will enter into a new era. They will come into a new era in which they will have a better understanding of God's love for them. The extent that he went to to show his love for them. And a new understanding of his grace for them. But also, as he continues, he shares that incredible promise with us. That in that day, you will ask in my name. He says, I'm not saying that you will ask and I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, he says, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and you have believed that I came from God. As we've been discussing over the last couple weeks, this has come up a few times, this idea of asking in Jesus' name. And we know that's referring to prayer. But when it refers to prayer, it's saying that we're praying in accord with, it's saying that we're praying in a manner that we're asking for the very same things, the very type of things that Jesus himself would ask for. We're praying in his name with all the things that are attributed and line up with the person of that name. Praying in his name is not an incantation where we can end our prayer with in Jesus' name and we've somehow tricked God into following through on what we've asked for or we've, we've forced his hand to put a stamp of approval on it. That's not praying in his name. Praying in his name is, is aimed at carrying forward the work that Jesus started as though he himself were uttering those very same words because we are in accord with his will and with where he wants us to go. But the point that's being stressed here is that we don't need to give our request to Jesus as though he was a messenger or a delivery servant who then takes our request to the Father. He's saying there's no need for an intermediary. There's no need for somebody to be between us and the Father because from the work of Jesus Christ, we have a hotline directly to the Father. We don't need the intermediary to be in place. And Jesus is not only the one who established that hotline to the Father, but he is also the means by which it is granted to us, by which we are granted access. You see, in Jesus' life and work upon the cross was for the purpose of revealing the kingdom of God. And then at the end of his time, after he had lived a perfect life, in submission, in perfect submission, and in perfect will to the Father, he gave his life as payment for our sins. And that is the means by which we can enter into right relationship with God. And earlier in this book of John, he he shares at the very beginning, in chapter 1, he says, whoever believes in that, whoever believes in who Jesus says he is, whoever believes that his work was sufficient and chooses to identify themselves with it, whoever believes in that, has been given the right to be called children of God. And as children of God, we have direct access to our Heavenly Father, who not only loves us, but welcomes us into His presence, who welcomes us into His courts and says to us, what is on your heart? What is on your mind? I care and I want you to share it with me. Which is what we can do when we pray. We have direct access to the Father who loves us. 
but not only loves us, but welcomes us in that manner. But do you see the key component here? Do you see the key component, the, the path to this access? Jesus has set the table. Everything is in place. All that remains is for us to take that step of belief. Belief that could be defined as placing our faith in him. Now Jesus knows that this is impossible for the disciples to comprehend on their side of Easter. And as he has said, they will not fully see Jesus. They will not fully comprehend the totality of all who he is and all that God is doing until this new era comes. Because these things are veiled at this point. But the disciples think they've got it. They think they've nailed it. So they respond to him by saying, well, now we see. Now we, you're speaking clearly. You're not using figures of speech anymore. Now we can see that you know all things and that you don't even need someone to ask you questions. Now this makes us believe that you have come from God. You see, there's no need to question that they've received glimpses of Jesus. There's no need to question that they believe him to be the Messiah. If you read the stories of Jesus we find in these Gospels, Jesus taught. They witnessed it. This teaching with incredible insight and authority. Even when he was being set up by the Pharisees, he seemed to always know how to respond. Jesus had performed just miracles that, would, would, that blew their minds. And they thought they can only come from the power of God. Jesus had proven beyond a, beyond a shadow of a doubt that he knew what they were thinking. And he knew their questions before they even asked them at times. And he repeatedly said, I have come from the Father. And considering all of these things put together, there was no need for further examination. They believed he was the Messiah. And they had put their trust in him. All of that was true. All of that would be valid reasoning. Some might even say that that is sound logic to come to this conclusion. But there is just one problem. That while they may believe Jesus to be the Messiah, they did not fully understand what that word meant yet. Because like Jesus has said, in that day, in the day that is coming, after the resurrection, you will understand. You see, they had missed that part of the teaching. So he calls them on it. He calls them on it when he, when he says, do you now believe? A time is coming, and in fact, it's already come, when you'll be scattered. Each of you will go back to your own homes, and you'll leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, because the Father is always with me. You see the word he throws back at them? The word he throws back at them is, do you now believe? They have just said previously, now you are speaking clearly. Now we can see, so now we believe. But we know the rest of the story, how this played out. The story to which Jesus is alluding in the rest of these verses in this section. That they did believe in him as the Messiah, but they lacked understanding. They lacked faith to stand with him in the days that were ahead. Because in mere hours, Jesus would be arrested. He would be tried. He would be flogged. He would be crucified. And he would be buried. The disciples would flee. They would deny. They would hide. They would go back to fishing. And they'd sit around looking at each other going, what in the world happened? Now, the disciples aren't bad guys. I, I genuinely believe that their comments come from this, this deep desire to prove their devotion to Jesus, and, and that's extremely honorable. The only thing they're really guilty of is being on the wrong side of a historical moment. They're just guilty of being on the wrong side 
of a new era that was about to come in. And as they would come to see after the death and resurrection, when they received the Holy Spirit, not only would that veil be lifted to provide understanding, but also they would be empowered to have the faith that they would need to stand with Jesus. And their example in this passage is a great reason as to why it's ineffective for us to trust in our own faith for anything of this world. And that we actually need to come and see not just the, not just the things of our life as gifts of God, but even the faith, the, the, the ability to have faith is a gift of God that comes from the Holy Spirit. That may be a difficult concept to grasp, but that our faith is in itself even a gift. But we see allusions to this throughout the New Testament. You know, Matthew, Matthew 17, Jesus says on this matter of faith that if we even had faith the size of a mustard seed on our own, we could move mountains. In Luke 12, he says that when you're worrying about the things, what are you going to eat? Where are you going to live? What about clothes? What about bills? What about things like that? He, he says, if God clothes the fields, if God feeds the birds, how much more will he provide for you? And in the matter of salvation, it's not about us working out salvation for ourselves. But Paul says that it's by grace we've been saved through faith, not of our own doing. You see, we put trust in, in our own ability at times. We can put trust in the things of this world at times, but they're fleeting. They will fall flat. And we can come to see these things that, that can sustain us as actual gifts from God. But there's a step beyond that where I want to encourage you to consider, am I looking to the creator or to the created for my trust? Am, am I having faith in God or in faith in what I can do? Okay, thanks God, I'll take it from here. Which, which I know at times I'm, I'm guilty of. There's a humanness in all of us that wants to reclaim that control of our lives and place faith back in ourselves. You know what, God, I'm pretty good at that. I think I can handle this one. But the surrender of open-hand attitude of, God, whatever you place, whatever you remove, I trust in you. I have faith in you. Is an attitude that's a challenge for us to grow into. And as I said at the beginning, I'm not just talking about belief in the existence of something or the belief in the existence of someone but rather asking the question, do you believe that Jesus Christ is who the Bible says he is? And if so, are you willing to place your trust in him for everything? Do you believe Jesus came in human form? Do you believe that he died upon the cross to pay the penalty for your sins for which you were destined for eternal separation from God and for which his sacrifice was the only payment? That's a question that's placed before everybody in this world. The question placed before all of us is, what or who do you put your faith in? And going back to that pivotal question that Jesus asked the disciples, do you now believe? Do you now believe? I've heard people say that for them it's hard to have faith. They would say something along the lines of, well, how can I have faith in God if I can't see him? You know, I understand the nature of that question. I, I, I really do. I, I can relate to the nature of that question. But more importantly, I think Jesus himself even can relate to the nature of that question. How can we have faith in him if we, we can't even see him? How do, we, how do we have faith in something we don't see? But if you recall, after the resurrection, Jesus was appearing to many people 
there's many records of, of Jesus appearing. In particular, on a number of times, he appeared to the disciples. But Thomas, one of his followers, had the worst luck. Like, whenever Jesus showed up, Thomas was absent. We don't know where he went. He went out to get dinner or he was in the washroom or something. But whenever Jesus showed up, Thomas was gone. And then he would come back and the others would tell him, oh, you just missed him again. <laughs> and, and Thomas refused to believe. He refused to believe their stories. And he said, he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, unless I put my fingers where those nails were, unless I can put my hand in his side, I will not believe. And when I read this story, when I picture this in my mind, it, 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 it actually reminds me of, of early, late 70s and early 80s, Sesame Street. Stay with me for a minute. <laughs> if you're over 40, you know where I'm going with this. If you remember Big Bird, his best friend, Mr. Snuffleupagus? Remember that? Who he referred to as Snuffy? Right? For many, many years, Big Bird and kids were the only one who could see Snuffy. Whenever an adult came around, Snuffy had just walked off stage, just walked off screen. And the conclusion all the adults came to is, well, Big Bird, you have an imaginary friend. And that's okay to have an imaginary friend. But then in 1985, finally they set up the big reveal. And finally the adults got to meet Snuffy. And they saw him, and then they believed in him at that point. And you've probably heard the saying, seeing is believing. Right? And that's what they're trying to impress there. Well, well I think it's fair to say that that is Thomas's motto in this story as well. And then about a week later, it finally happens. Finally, Jesus appears to them, and this time Thomas is there. And he's there, and, and Jesus says to him, Jesus goes to Thomas and says, Thomas, put your finger in my hand. Put your hand in my side. And in response to this, Thomas comes to believe, and he cries out, my God and my Lord. To which Jesus replies, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believe. For us today, what does it mean for us to see Jesus? Now clearly we know we can't see him with, with, with our visual ability, our visual acuity. We can't see him with our eyes. But I want to suggest to you the lack of visual perception does not negate the reality of something. One of the most classic examples of this would be the wind. You can't see the wind, but you can see the effects of the wind. When you come to this time of year and, and the wind is blowing leaves off the tree, you can see the effects of the wind. When you pile them up and you go inside to get a garbage bag, you come out and the wind has blown them all back over again. You see the effects of the wind. When you're filling your car with gas in the middle of January and you encounter the thing called wind chill, you do not doubt the reality of wind in that moment. We have belief in these things, even though you can't see them. Some would say, well, sure. Well, well the wind falls within the realm of imperial empirical evidence though it falls within that realm so i can believe in that but it's hard facts alone things that i can test in that manner well i would like to suggest to you that's actually a fallacy that it is impossible to live in this world without faith it is impossible to live in this world upon hard facts alone and i'll unpack this for you by beginning with some light-hearted examples that i think a lot of us will be able to refer to Imagine or think back to a time when you went to see a doctor at a walk-in clinic. So you go to the walk-in clinic and you sign in and you sit for a little while and then, then a lady will take you to a very uncomfortable room 
or you'll sit for a few minutes and wait. At some point, a person opens the door, walks in, and will say to you, what seems to be the problem? To which, you just suddenly spring into sharing the most personal, most embarrassing details of your life at that moment. Why, why do we do that? Is it because they have a name tag on? Is it because they have a stethoscope around their neck? Is it because they have a, the right coat? Because somebody hung a diploma on the wall? Why are we so quick to place trust in that person? Another example would be if you're traveling by airplane. You go play a huge fee, and then you go wait in a terminal for three hours. And then when they call your flight, you and a bunch of other people, single file, you go and you choose to sit and belt yourself into a metal tube. And then you wait until some person you've never met takes you up to an elevation of 30,000 feet at 500 miles an hour. And you just assume you're going in the right direction. But you really have no idea. Why are we willing to do that? You don't understand aerodynamics. You've never met the pilot. You don't know the condition the plane is in. Why are we so willing to do that? Are we just assuming that the airline has repaired it properly? Are we assuming and trusting that, well, the pilot's got to be a good guy? Or are we simply doing it because we're just being lemmings and following the line that goes onto the plane? You see, in all of these cases, what we do is we gather the evidence available, the, the coat, the diploma, the stethoscope, the presence in a medical clinic. We gather the evidence available, and it leads us to a belief. But there's a gap in the middle. Because it's impossible for us to know everything by complete certainty. There will always be a gap in the middle between the evidence we have and the belief that we conclude. In the example of the doctor, we believe he went to medical school and passed his courses. We believe that the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons has examined him and that he is fit to help us. In the case of the pilot... We have faith that he went to flight school, that Transport Canada thoroughly checked him out. We have faith that he had a good night's sleep last night, and we have faith that he hasn't been drinking. But we don't know that for a fact. There's a gap between evidence and belief. And that gap between evidence and belief is what I would suggest you we could refer to as faith. And one of my favorite, one of the most well-known theologians and philosophers, Rabbi Zacharias, has said this. He said, God has put enough into this world to make faith in him a very reasonable thing. But he has left out just enough to make it impossible to live by sheer reason alone. If you're looking for it, you will find evidence for the existence of God all around you. You will find evidence for his existence all around you. You merely need to look at the amazing vastness of the universe. Where it's said that there are ten billion galaxies, each with a hundred billion stars. I don't know if anybody here has, has the mental capacity to fathom that vastness of a universe. We can shrink it down, go the other direction, shrink it down to the microscopic level and see the amazing, the amazing world, the unseen world that exists through a microscope that just, that, that just screams intelligent creation. That there must be an order and a plan and intentionality to all that's going on. You can look at the intricate design of the world, which is just held in perfect balance. And you can see various stats on this, but they all come to the same conclusion. That the likelihood, the statistical chance that everything that exists in this world that holds in perfect balance to make life possible and sustainable is a number that is unfathomable. 
is an unfathomable percentage of likelihood that that could exist. You can look to the existence of morality. The fact that people all around the world, regardless of encounters with, with, with the God of the Bible or not, there's a known good and bad, right and wrong. And this existence of morality points to a moral lawgiver in order for us to have that ingrained within us. I could go on and go into further detail, point to a number of things from philosophy and from the natural world, but some people, they, their brains don't work that way. And so there's other things we can look to as well. And so if philosophy in the natural world is not your thing, then I simply point you to the people in this room. So look at the people in this room. One of the first things that, that Pastor Luke came and dropped off into my office when I first started here was a little booklet that was given out in the Christmas of 2014. Full of stories that people shared of God's goodness, of God's presence and provision in their lives. And as I flipped through that book of, of just personal testimonies of people who are sitting in this room, we saw that there was times when provision was shown in, in times of difficulty. That there was peace in the midst of life-threatening illnesses. That there was evidence that God was using the right people at just the right time. That you either have to sit back and go, eh, it's coincidence. Or you can choose to say God was doing something. There are stories of the healing of children. Of God revealing himself to people in a way, in a moment that was so specific to them that they could not deny his reality in their lives. There were stories of restored relationships, of emotional healing, and of constant faithfulness and protection for those who are following Christ. There is evidence in the world all around us for the existence of God. There is evidence in the world of philosophy. There is evidence in this room for the existence of God. Faith. As you look at the world around you, as you look at the events in your life, as you look at these stories from other people's lives, those who have had heart attacks, those who have had other medical issues, a lack of hope, those who have been on the verge of losing it all, and then through an encounter with God found that hope and found that peace and found that love. It's all around us. It's in our own lives if we will have eyes to see, if we will choose to see. So we have a choice. We can take the evidence before us, we can add that step of faith, that place trust. And then we consider the question again, do you now believe? Do you now believe? You see, the purpose of Jesus' teaching that we've been covering these past six weeks was to comfort and reassure his believers. To offer comfort and reassurance to all those who would call themselves followers of Jesus Christ. Because they were going to have to go into the world in the power of the Holy Spirit, and continue the work of sharing the good news of God's love for all people. And as the disciples found out, and as all of us are very aware, that's not an easy task. There is never a promise in the Bible that you will find that says, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you will be problem-free. You will not find that teaching. If you hear that teaching, it's a misappropriation of verses. There is never a promise that we would have a problem-free, just coasting through life. In the final verse that Jesus shares, a verse that I'll close today with, but also a verse that Jesus closes this entire teaching passage with. These few chapters he closes with saying this. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. 
Notice the contrast. The contrast between in me and in the world. Two places that we have an option to place our trust in. In Jesus or in the world. Notice also the contrast between the two predetermined outcomes. Between peace and trouble. The peace that Jesus speaks here is not the absence of trouble. It's not the absence of enemies. The peace he's speaking about here takes our struggles and the uncertainties of this world very seriously. It says as serious and as real as those are, you will find peace. You will find freedom from the anxiety of this life. And then the final encouragement he shares is is take heart. Take heart, have courage. It's actually the same word that was used in the Sea of Galilee when the storm was blowing and the disciples thought they were going to drown. In the midst of that tumultuous storm and event, Jesus said to them, take heart, have courage. And he again tells them the same thing here. Not courage in ourselves. Not a sense that we in ourselves can overcome this world. It's not what Jesus is saying. He's encouraging us not to be strong in ourselves, but points us to find peace. Points us to find courage and strength in his victory. To find those things in the fact that he overcame the world. Because Jesus is more than just a man who lived a superior life. He's more than just a man who had a stellar example of morality. Jesus is the Son of God who overcame for his sake and for ours so that his victory is one that we can enjoy. It's extended to us if we will choose to embrace him in faith. You know, if you're going through a difficult time right now, and I know there are people that are. I've talked to some of you, and I know some of the very real stories and challenges that exist within the people's lives in this room. You may have a struggle with relationships or a direction in life. You're not sure about the future employment or there's health concerns. I can't promise you God is going to remove that from you today. There's a reasonable chance you will have some difficult days ahead of you still. But if you will not just believe, if you will place your faith in Jesus Christ, his message here for you says this. He says, have courage. I have faced your enemy, and I have vanquished him. I have fought your battle on that battleground of human existence, where you must go and continue fighting. But I have routed your foe. You can't do it alone but I have done it before and I can do it again. I can do it again through you if you will abide in me, if you will have faith in me that my victory is yours. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible foundational promise that we have direct access to you. That right in this moment that, that we are speaking to you in your courts, that you hear cry of our hearts, that you hear the burdens of our souls, that you hear the praises from our lips, as we acknowledge, Lord, that all things are under your control and your sovereignty, all things come from you and are by you, Lord, and for you. God, there are seasons in this life where we will wrestle with faith. There'll be times when we just, we just don't know if we have it in us. And God, may those be the moments where we realize that it's not in us, it's in you. 
that we would turn to you, acknowledge you, seek you. Trusting, Lord, having faith, Lord, that you will provide in that moment. In these immaterial ways even. That we will be able to stand firmly regardless of the storms of this world. That when our faith seems weak, that the Holy Spirit in us would bolster it up. That we would not only find peace in you, but also be a walking, living, breathing testimony of your goodness in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name.